0: This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, cease and desist. Laura Mullen recently came out with a new collection about a world she knows well, but a world she no longer feels at home in, academia. It's not the students, she loves teaching and she loves her students, but the institution itself, which, as I'm sure you know, is really a business complete with board meetings and performance targets and glossy brochures that market the dream of higher education to young people who will be ruthlessly milked for cash. In her new collection titled "Etc.", Mullen decided to push this milk metaphor as far as it would go by remaking academia into a dairy conglomerate where language is carefully managed, vetted, and sanitized. Because the last thing they need at this fictional conglomerate is people speaking their minds. Meanwhile, in the real world, a few weeks before the book was set to come out, Laura fired off a quick tweet. It was a Thursday around 9 p.m. And for the past few days, she'd been watching the news, horrified to see how after the October 7th attack by Hamas, the IDF was now meting out collective punishment against the entire civilian population of Gaza, bombing refugees as they fled, bombing patients as they lay sick or wounded in the hospital. Laura has since deleted the tweet and asked me to respect her decision, but it went something like, if I were treated the way Palestinians are, I too might be tempted to attack Israel. It didn't take long for the death threats to start coming in. Two weeks later, she resigned from her post as canon Chair in the Humanities at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. When I sat down to talk to her, she was still dealing with the fallout from her words. But she was also in a place she loved, New Orleans, where she used to live. Here's our conversation. First of all, how's
1: New Orleans? How's it being back? Oh my God, it's so amazing. It's absolutely life-saving. I um I went to the Poor Boy Festival yesterday and it ended with a set by George Porter Jr. and he played a Sly Stone tribute and the tribute mm-hmm. included, thank you for letting me be myself again. And I was like, yes, New Orleans. That's New Orleans. It's just, it's heaven to be home. I, I told the people at Octavia Books, my highest life aspiration is to be regarded as an honorary local poet in New Orleans. <sighs>
0: How long did you live there? Eight years. Uh huh. That's interesting. That eight years has done so much that you feel like that is home. What, um,
1: what is it about New Orleans, you think? It really is that permission. It's so um, arts oriented, so open. Just, it's okay to live here in a way that it mostly isn't in America.
0: Yeah. Anyway, let's let's get down to it. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So there are two things that I want to talk about. I want to talk about your book, obviously. Yeah. I also want to talk about the situation that you're going through
1: right now. The most famous poem I'll ever write. (laughs) I know. The thing I realized is when I wrote ETC, I was terrified of the risks I was taking in the book absolutely terrified. I, I sent the manuscript to a former teacher and mentor and friend, D.A. Miller, and he called me up and he said, what is wrong with you? You're so scared. I, I don't even think this manuscript as it is right now can be any good because you're so terrified. And I was like, okay, okay, all right, that helped. And I, I backed off of the fear, kind of got through it a little bit. And then, um and then, and then, the book went along and went along and was accepted and got close to publication. And my wonderful publishers suddenly started emailing me at like 3 a.m. to say, uh, there are some issues here we think lawyers should look at. And so we went through that with like the, um, okay, this corporation name has to come out and you can't say this in an interview and boom, 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 boom. So I went through this terror, and then I got over the terror, and then I went back into terror. And then um, the shit came down that is coming down now. And I realized I'm like, I'm not afraid of anything in the book at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's
0: interesting. So that the thing that happened in your personal life kind of overshadowed whatever... Whatever dairy company is coming for you, you're like, look, I've had it worse. Yeah. No, listen, I've
1: been on Twitter since 2012. The other big fun I had on Twitter was the year that I asked AWP to try to be more diverse. And that got, that was a thing. That got blown up. And the head of AWP wrote to my chair at the time and tried to get me fired on that one. (sighs) So this isn't entirely my first rodeo. However, since that time, nobody – I mean, my posts don't get much action. Like, Mm. you know, 20 likes is a big deal. 60 views is normal. And this got 35,000 views. Um, I'm just going to pause for a minute, Helena, and just, like, breathe a little bit because I've been – sick with stress for over a month, (laughs) like physically sick and unable to sleep. And I am totally willing to talk to you about this, Mm. but it might be nicer to start with the book. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay, let's come back to it. Yeah. Um, So, right. So your collection opens with a poem about a dairy farmer strike in 1932. Can you tell me sort of the story behind the dairy strike. What happened?
1: Why were these farmers striking? And what was it about that story that struck you? Okay. So many layers to it. Um, first of all, I'm uh, the daughter of a stevedore. I was raised to believe in unions. My father played me the weavers in my cradle. Then by honest weights we'll labor Union ma. So
0: keep your hand upon the dollar
1: And your eye upon the scale So this strike is about people who have a product and who are not getting the value for their product and are trying to find a way to get the value that they should get. For their product, and that requires a strike. That requires action, and that is, of course, something right now we're coming back to in America as unions begin to come back into power. As we realize there is only one way to stop the corporate um, predatory practices, which will reduce us to the matrix. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. But. Let's let's contextualize the book as a whole. It's uh, in part about what Jennifer Fried calls institutional betrayal. It's in part about the corporatization of academia, and what that means for those who labor in that discipline, industry, whatever you want to call it, because. Why don't we just talk about adjuncts for a minute? (laughs) Mm, Okay. Mm, mm. Why don't we just talk about what we're going to have to do so that people are not um, raped by the institution they're working for?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, right? Because, like, I think when we think about unions and strikes, we do think about this idea of the working class in the sense that the work that you do is standing on your feet and doing something with your hands or whatever. Like like that's sort of the traditional image almost, you know? Right. But I feel like we now live in a world where you can have a desk job or you can have a, a job where you spend a lot of time in books and it can still actually be structured like, yeah, like a really extractive factory job or something where you're just being treated like a cog in a machine so I think it's interesting to sort of have that. It would be harder to make a poem about an adjunct because their days don't look as cinematic. You, you know what I'm saying, right? Like the image of milk flowing down ditches is
1: is something that's hard to produce in academia. Well, it. I think it helps us to see what we should be able to see, which is human lives flowing away down the ditches. Yeah, yeah. It's so important to me because I've been a teacher and because I've been a teacher of graduate students. And that means I've been sending people out into a job search that has resulted in pain for them. Not being able to get what you thought you would get from the training you paid for. Yeah. At this point, it feels almost like a pyramid scheme, right? Of it Well, it is a pyramid scheme at this point. And it it wasn't. Certainly my teacher didn't think she was participating in it. And I didn't, when I started mm. out, think I was participating in it. But part of the reason I took the job at Wake Forest is I wanted to go back to straight up undergrad teaching because I was worried uh, about Students who would come to me and they would get their MFA and then they would say, well, my parents expect me to go to to get a job. It was like, well, uh, the MFA is a license to hunt. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really
0: great description for it. Um, Well, let's read that opening poem to ground us. Sure. In the opening of the book. Uh, Is there anything that you want to say to set it up before you launch into
1: it? Mm. No. Okay. Sioux City Milk War, 1932. Sing muses, if you will, of what opened once in the spread between what farmers earned for milk and the price consumers paid at the lip of the Depression. Speak of roads shut by mazes of hay bales, hot farmers with shotguns asking drivers their business, and the ditches running white with the poured-out milk on this holiday, which was the word used in place of strike. Tell us again of that long-ago August and those for whom justice became urgent. Sing of the right to collective bargaining if you love us, or let the silence eloquent around that lost history speak here of fearfulness. Chant the history of hikes and dips in land prices, the diminishing numbers of farms, and remember now the great corporations, wielders of the cease and desist letters, whose names, removed here, we must not take in vain. May the talking flower or satellite dish from which our avatar partially emerges, echo the words of Mr. Archie Wright, who saw the small farm as the basis of our democracy and said, to live, you have to think. So, for instance, this poem, um, where it says, remember now the great corporations, comma, In the first version of the poem, we got a list of the names of the great corporations. And um, my very smart, wonderful, beloved publishers said, Laura, uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. You know, and I was like, well, why? And they were like, Laura, we don't want to get a cease and desist letter. So I was like, oh, wait, this actually makes the poem better. It does. It yes. makes the poem better, especially because it gave me the chance to make the religious crossover, which keeps happening in the book and the way we're sort of Christian about our capitalism, you know. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I could say the names we must not take in vain. Mm-hmm. It is <laughs> uh-huh. really wonderful. And wielders
0: of the cease and desist letters is such a great, um, God, what is the word now? Uh you know, an adjective that always
1: goes with the same
0: person. You know, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. you know. What I'm Absolutely about, right? no, I do know, and yeah. it's almost like one of those ancient poems in which yes. wielders of the cease yes. and desist letters would be attached to their name. <laughs> exactly, yeah. that's
0: exactly what it feels like. Yeah. Um, so it's beautiful. I mean, it really elevates the poem. I think, uh, uh, but no. to hear that it came out of three AM anxiety from your publisher, I think, is is kind of brilliant. Or from you know, yeah. Yeah. And what I thought was such an interesting choice is that you open the book with the poem that is maybe the most um, well behaved. Can I put it that way? Mm. (laughs) It really gave me the impression like, okay, this is a poem that opens a politically engaged book, a kind of like an essay of sorts uh, rooted in historical research. And then I read the rest of your book. And what I thought was so fabulous was that you immediately bring in Elsie, you know, the mascot in the shape of a cow for an, again, unnamed dairy company. And Elsie changes the whole game. She leads you into all these directions, right? She, she does. And she's she is all these persona. Uh and you know, she's sometimes a mascot and she's sometimes like a corporate girly, you know, with meeting minutes and a statement
1: necklace. Yes. Yeah, made out the daisies. The the chair of a department of anguish. It's amazing. It's so good. <laughs> it's
0: so good. And in some poems, she's a deity, which also led me to one of your favorite one of my favorite puns from
1: your collection. Uh co- I don't even know how to come a deity. She's a deity deity, where we where we mix the commodity and the deity together. Yes. I know for me, I was like, I just I was ecstatic. I tickled myself pink with that one.
0: Oh, my God. I can believe it. Because when I read it, I thought, how have I never seen this before? This is just too good. Like it encapsulates everything about our current time, you
1: know, things like that. The book gave me a lot of gifts, like the dyslexic smear, I'll call it, between <laughs> diary and dairy. Yeah. That, mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm. just,
0: it was just <laughs> a gift. And so where did she, what happened to your poems once you found Elsie? Like, where did she lead you? Do you remember anything feeling possible or an insight happening or
1: a direction that you thought, huh, that's just thanks to Elsie? Um, the whole book is thanks to Elsie. <laughs> and I suddenly remembered and tapped into this image that was so deeply a part of my childhood. Uh if if you grow up in America, right, this face is everywhere. Everywhere. Huh. Everywhere. It really is the Kama deity. And once I started doing that research and thinking into it, it just, yeah, the book wouldn't exist without her.
0: Yeah, I really love Elsie. I mean, I love how all of her different identities, whether she's a deity, comedy, or she's a girl boss, (laughs) Mm -hmm. or she's a slightly huffed sort of, you know white woman who has been you know wronged yeah in some way like they all read as still the same person and a person that's very pervasive in yes America. well there was a, um, a poem that i was wondering you want to read one of the lc poems uh is the one on page 15
1: stop writing about me oh i love that poem it's one of my favorites oh good so yes thank you for that uh, again, maybe can you
0: set it up a little bit? Maybe I don't know. Maybe the state of mind that you were in when you wrote it, or you know, like oh, because this is you know the reason I'm asking you yeah. is this is a little bit further away from unions and milk. This poem,
1: yeah. Let me let me think about that, <laughs> as Elsie <C>. says. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, okay. Let's just let's just lay it on the table. This entire book was written at what was then maybe the worst part of my life. Now it seems like nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But the entire book uh, was written out of rage and pain and grief. And all the Elsie poems, Helena, came extremely quickly. I wrote 80 poems in three months. I mean, this book is a fraction. There's a someday director's cut of all the stuff (laughs) I cut out. To make it the shapeliness that I uh, liked for this. But to remember the state of mind for any of the poems, it's not going to be very various. They all came rushing out of me. I just would come home, open the notebook, and just, just go. Go just go into this place. And I was so grateful for the way I was very isolated, for the way the poems gave me a place to um, speak, as far as I was concerned, the truth of what I was experiencing in a way that turned pain, rage, and grief into art and Mm. made me often laugh out loud and gave me the um, courage and joy and joie de vivre to go on living through what I was living through. Um, Can I ask what you were living through? Um, boy, oh boy, oh boy. Uh, let me think about that. <laughs> um, it, uh, Yeah. I I would say I think the easiest way to say that, and you hear in my voice the fact that I haven't really prepared myself to answer that question, but let me just say I'm a first-generation college student, and it meant the world to me to be able through mentoring and training and hard work to become A writer and a scholar. Uh, There was a chance I wasn't going to go to college at all. I I was a waitress and had a motorcycle and thought I might be a visual artist. And um, when I began to realize that the thing I'd worked so hard to become was in fact uh, a thing that involved a participation in an institution that was Deeply compromised, and um, in fact, as we discussed earlier, potentially leading people to spaces that would be extraordinarily difficult and painful for the whole of their lives. I was devastated, just devastated and lost. Did something happen, because you had been in
0: academia for a while by then, right? Did something happen that that came to a head then?
1: Um, I think uh, that because of who I am, um, I adore teaching. And I really, really am ecstatic to have had the chance to work with the students I've worked with, because I've worked with amazing people. Um, Academia itself has not been... Uh, a easy place for me to be. And because I've done what you need to do in academia, which is to follow the good jobs, um, I have spent most of my life in places I didn't want to be. The eight years in New Orleans were ecstatic and special. Um, They did involve an 80-mile commute (laughs) each way. (laughs) Um, But they were worth it. Uh, because it was the first time in my adult life that I got to live where I wanted to live. Hmm. So. Wow. And you were how old when that happened? Uh, that was 2003. 2000- Thirteen. So what? Fifty-five. Fifties. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That is kind of dark to think that you
0: had to wait until you were mid-fifties to live somewhere you wanted to be.
1: Okay. Yeah. And <laughs> and then I left and took a job and I live somewhere I don't want to be. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it just just let's just say uh, it, it's been really dark and really hard. And there's certain ways that academics are that I'm just not like that. Uh, I'm just not like they're just really good at not talking about stuff, and as you can imagine <laughs> failed that test <laughs> miserably so so it's just been a really, really uh, long, hard go, and uh I love the um Ernest Hemingway quote about somebody losing his money. How did he lose it mm-hmm. gradually and suddenly, yeah, okay, so how yeah. did academia become impossible? gradually and suddenly. And I'm not shutting the door on academia. Um, I'm going to teach in December for my favorite low-res MFA program, Stetson's MFA of the Americas, which is pure bliss, absolutely pure bliss. And I, I do feel like there's going to be a situation where I'll be able to teach again that will be in a more um, artsy and human Context. <laughs> so, um, but the, the, the humanities are under extraordinary pressure. So when we talk about, um, you know, Laura, what, what changed for you, we have to go back to Archie Wright. We have to go back to the corporatization of academia. We have to say, look, it's not just that I changed. It's also my situation changed. Or as mm-hmm. they say about the frogs and the test, the water got hotter and hotter and <laughs> hotter. <laughs> yeah. And when I noticed that my skin was bubbling, <laughs> I was like, dude, <laughs> The ice
0: cubes. (laughs) (laughs) You found an unlikely ice cube to get you out.
1: Yeah,
0: indeed. Um, (laughs) Indeed. So, Okay, so I want to get to the poem Stop Writing About Me. Yes, please. uh, The one on page 15. Yeah. So, okay, just to set the scene again, you are... Boiling in a pot, slowly boiling, slowly, slowly, boil. slowly
1: boiling in a pot. And the yeah. the pot and is it, the pot of academia. It's also the yeah. pot of uh, what we call po-biz, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking about what it is to be writing poetry mm-hmm. right now. Right. So
0: every night you come home and you open your. No book and you start writing
1: these Elsie poems. Yeah. And-, and on this particular evening, she says to me, Stop writing about me. i like, oh. I'm like uh. And I, oh, I wondered where the rest of that would go. Stop writing about me like this, Elsie says primly. You need to be sympathetic. Poems are for deepening our emotional capabilities. Yours are not impressive, by the by, seeming to be slightly less capacious than your bra size. Poetry is meant to lead you to love, she huffs, as if it were a drug, like morphine, which memorably once allowed me to feel the whole world was my friend. Briefly. Let me think about that and get back to you. Elsie thinks that if I were writing correctly, I'd be married by now, or at least have better selfies, and I think a literature meant to help its author be interpolated into the larger marketing strategy is bound to be a very limited field of activity. Right? But Elsie who hates to be lectured to, as she puts it, is already turning away. Let me think, she says, about that and get back to you. She won't. She fixes her lipstick, adjusts her statement necklace of yellow daisies, I think it's a choker, actually, and fluffs her horns. Please, I hear her humming as she prances off, and she repeats it. Me, she adds, like I
0: It's so interesting how this poem, um, like all the L.C. poems, you know, comes out of this conceit, this cow, this, you know, mascot that has these other layers to her persona. And then so much reality enters the poem. And I just want to ask you a little bit more about that scene. Uh, Let me think, she says about that and get back to you. She won't. She fixes her lipstick, adjusts her statement necklace of yellow daisies, and fluffs her horns. I love that very quick, you know, let me get back to you. She won't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because you already said, you know, academia, and and I think certainly academia is not the only place where we do our utmost to avoid saying... What actually really should be said, and uh, let yeah. me get back to you. Uh, we won't, you know. Yeah. Um. And this whole book is really haunted by the speaker being told to shut up, mm. being told not to press it, not
1: to go be- there. I ventriloquize the voice mm. that I that I hear all the time, and that I've yeah. always heard. I have to say, this goes beyond academia. Mm. Um. Mm. I was. Uh, raised by alcoholics. So it's a voice I've always heard that says if you would just shut up everything will be fine.
0: Well, I'm grateful that you said it not me because that would actually that was actually my question. I was like yeah. this book is so haunted by that situation, right? Of the speaker
1: being told Shh. yeah, no it's um uh, page so tell me like can I just you know yeah. yeah, sorry. Page 82, the picture of radical doubt in the diary industry. Yes. Yeah, well, so that has the quote in it with the words we maybe ca- can. we say them? <laughs> Are we going to bleep them out? Shut the bleep off? Oh, up? yes, we can. We can swear on the podcast. Oh, Thank fantastic. For that. Oh, yes. here goes then. <laughs> um. I was sent home from kindergarten for saying Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, you started early. That it, uh, is... School and me, man. <laughs> wow.
0: It's so interesting how um how long this line is in your life, you know? Yeah. One of my
1: grandmothers was a blacklisted communist actress.
0: Hmm.
1: So it's just it's all written. <laughs> you know, it's all it was all yeah. like it just from the beginning. I was also sent home from kindergarten for refusing to salute the flag. <sighs> so So. yeah
0: kindergarten yeah (laughs) yeah and so you know across your work you do interesting things with narrative and so I'm I was just curious about that you know like what was it like growing up like what were the stories that you were supposed to tell what were the stories that you were not supposed to tell and what did it make you feel about story as something to trust or not mm.
1: wow um it, let's see uh, if I go I mean I'm I'm Irish American so and and as I say there was a shit ton of alcoholism. So stories were part of things and people telling stories to make themselves look good, but also um, wonderfully, uh, the family liked jokes. And my father also liked the stories that showed off the problems a little bit, but he didn't like other people doing that. He could do that about himself. He, you couldn't do that about him. Um, and my mother was, as I say in a, another poem somewhere is she one of the last things she said before she died was that she was an Egyptian. She lived by denial. <laughs> 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 uh, this is a woman who, when I said, can we talk about, you know, can we talk about the fact that you know you're gonna die? She said, Laura, that is so tactless. Oh. <laughs> tactless um so there was a lot of pressure not to speak and not to speak the truth and when i was about 15 i tried to kill myself my grandmother um who was a brilliant, brilliant woman, not the actress, but the art dealer, gave me a journal and said, you have something inside you probably need to let out. And writing has been my lifeline Mm. ever since. So I've always kept writing as the place where when everything around me is saying, shut the bleep Mm -hmm. up, I have a place I can go to and I can say the thing that's real and that keeps me alive.
0: And what is so interesting, I think, about, you know, Kids is that whatever context they grow up in initially when they're little, they'll think is normal,
1: yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: right. And so, you yeah. you adjust, um, you you adjust. And I'm wondering, do you remember when the cracks started showing when you started to realize this is not normal, or I do not want to join in in telling these false stories or not talking? about the things I want to talk about. When did
1: the cracks start to show for you? I think the um, cracks showed the whole way through. Mm-hmm. But the, the moment of a suicide attempt is the moment of somebody saying the the cracks have become an abyss.
0: Right. That's why I was curious, you know, like when it... Because that seems like you've been trying to
1: shout it, but no one's listening for a while. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, um, there goes my voice. Sorry, <sighs> I think it's uh, I think it's um, there's in in more than one book of mine. There is the image I realized of the scream that yeah. comes in at the end of this, and uh-huh. um, yeah, I think weirdly uh, from the beginning, it's just absurd. But I somehow um, fell out of the womb <laughs> saying it's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Yeah, some people sure. are
0: really like that. And it's going to be a rough life. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, but that is what I'm most curious about in reading your work and, and reading all of the poems in this collection that that mention that or that kind of play into that sort of like, oh, shut up, don't talk about this. This needs to be removed. Like, you know, this name cannot be taken in vain. This, you know, cease and desist letters. Like the whole poetry collection is struck through with this idea of like, don't say what you see is clear and plain for all to see
1: because yeah. that's not what we do here, you know? That's not what we do here. And to dip back into the current situation, yeah. in fact... um you may be uh, deliberately misinterpreted and vilified and threatened.
0: Yeah, that I found so interesting to you. Um,
1: are you okay with going back to the tweet? Um, I can. I was thinking last night about how much my time in New Orleans played into um, my writing That particular post, which, as I say, I thought was going out to five of my closest friends. But if you have this sense of injustice and you live in places where things are unequal, you become very, very, very aware of the costs of inequality so i was I was sort of playing last night as I sat in bed with a version, another version of the the post, which would you know go something like um uh, let's see if you run a freeway through my neighborhood, if you redline all of my people into dire poverty, if you um refuse reparations, if you go on enforcing the injustice that results from over 400 years of the appalling follow-up to the atrocity of enslavement, I might be tempted to jack your car. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What we do to each other that is violent doesn't come out of nowhere, ever.
0: But what I think is so interesting about this tweet, well, first of all, as you said, you wrote it for what you thought was five of your, you know, close friends or people who already know you. And of course, then it went out to more people than that. As you said, what did you say, 35,000 impressions or views? By the, yeah. It's insane. Uh let's not even think about those numbers. But what I thought was so interesting was that um the tweet sort of has two layers, right? There's sort of the the argument of it and then there's the tone. And having read your poems, I think the tone is so in line with how you write, you know? Like yeah. you're so Yeah. you're so funny and darkly funny. Um, always, you're, right, always. and and sort of always putting it in very vivid. You're a poet, so of yeah. course there's going to be images. It's going to be grounded in um, the you know the world of the perceptions, and 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 I thought that maybe because you're a poet, because you're a good writer who makes things visceral, maybe that was a little too much for people on the receiving end of that tweet who. Um, it's it's very hard in the situation, um, you know, Palestine. Um, well, when you look it, too closely,
1: when you look actually, when you actually imagine, it's unbearable. It's it's our job to feel, and it's the failure of feeling that is allowing us to do what we're doing. And my current statement. On the situation is, um, excuse me, but since I am an American taxpayer and since it means my money, my dollars, are going into allowing Israel to commit genocide, I do not feel like I need to support them verbally. I mean. You have to understand, I'm 65. I I protested the Vietnam War. This is stupid on the Vietnam level. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. really a terrible thing that we're doing to our souls that we will never recover from. And meanwhile, there are bodies, there are lives being lost. And we have no idea what the cost of that devastation is. Yeah. We have no idea, except history, which teaches us that when you oppress and murder people, you make a source of future pain for everyone. Yeah, the losses keep uh, rippling. Yeah. It just
0: keeps compounding.
1: It keeps compounding.
0: and. I mean, I'm just so curious, you know, because you you were talking a little bit about you as a, you know, as a kindergartner that you were sent out of class for not uh, saluting the flag. And um, uh, I also read an anecdote recounted by a former student of yours in New Orleans who remembers going to a Planned Parenthood rally with you and you wanted to say something about the abortion you had uh, in the early '90s, uh, long before then, uh, but you had just become head of the Louisiana State University Creative Writing Program, and so, you know, you realized that wow, there were possible consequences for you. Like there, this was possibly not an entirely safe thing to do for you. But you spoke to the crowd anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, well, like, what went like? Okay, as a kindergartner, we can just keep that aside as a nice little sort of character study elements, right? We we don't have to talk about what went into that decision you were a kid. But I really want to know and and not sort of the 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 manifesto, right? Like yeah. it's important free speech, no, but what is it about you that you can see oh, I might very well lose
1: my head over this and do it anyway mm The abortion rally, uh, I feel like it's much, much easier. This is one of the reasons that um, social media is so problematic. It's much easier to be in a real-life situation, real-life, real-time, and decide to speak. Uh, To speak and then have it picked up by an algorithm and sent out is a whole other thing. So I have to say I was— Completely. I, I was completely unprepared. I, I mean, what's going on in this country around just people just saying a, a single pro-Palestinian thing is still actually to me, despite the fact that I had a grandmother who talked back to the House on american Activities Committee. It's completely shocking to me what we're going through. So I was not prepared. When did
0: you realize like what was the first inkling that something had gone differently
1: than you thought? Mm. okay <clears throat> I think if you will forgive me I think I'd like to maybe draw a line there because then we get into we start getting into um the details and um all I can all I can say to you what I'd like to say to you is you have no Unless you've gone through it yourself, you don't know. I mean, Helena, uh, I was told not to take walks alone. I was told that um, someone might co- want to come splash acid in my face. I um, had set up a reading for Cole Swenson, and the police came to the reading to make sure I wasn't harmed. I've spent a month afraid. And I think that, I mean, I appreciate the chance to talk with you uh, specifically you uh, about it but i i'd like to if we may draw draw a line and say okay yeah enough it it shouldn't i mean yeah let's i i'd let's talk to ann boyer let's talk to let's talk to yeah. all of the fabulous brave people in this country who are saying no ceasefire now
0: but that's why it was so i mean and i'm and i Let me, let me, um, how to put this? Anything that you don't want me to say, we will not say, and I will not include. Thank you. I am trying to understand the boundaries, though, of this, you know? So, like, if I... Pro, please forgive me and don't think that I'm pushing
1: back. I'm just trying to see where that line is. Sure. And I hope, oh, my goodness, I really hope that if you have any qualms about what I publicly said, you will, even if we don't include it in the interview, you will just tell me because that's oh, yeah, been of one of yeah. the horrors of this is 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 is. Um, meeting and talking to—I mean, it happened right away. Like this lovely young student showed up at my doorway and um, wanted to talk to me about the post. And of course, I was like, "It's a lovely young, week for a student who wants to talk about the post." Of course, all turned out she was being paid to write for the. Um, <sighs> right-wing newspaper campus reform <laughs> so come oh on oh god please
0: oh let's uh, well uh, no um, <laughs> I, I don't know like if it would be a credible co- it would be a very good cover if I'd be like I interview poets but actually I'm a right-wing uh, spy <laughs> right.
1: you know that wow right. that was nobody would ever guess yeah. um, no I'm not I'm not accusing you I'm just like oh, uh, let's to <laughs> now I'm a little more like let's get the cards on the yeah. table. <laughs> no,
0: I get no, I, that makes sense. It's just, you know, what I find so interesting is that your whole book teases apart that sort of phenomenon that happens all across corporate America and academia and like all across our politics. And, you know, uh, what what was the line that we just uh, read? Uh, let me get back to you. Let me uh, think about didn't. that. Yeah, I let get... me think about that. It, you know, exactly, she won't. Right? Exactly. And so like, my question here is like, I can see like that you have perfectly legitimate reasons to be circumspect. At the same time, here we are not talking about the thing that we want to talk about. Oh, but what I want to talk about with you is the book.
1: <laughs> no, I
0: understand yeah. that. I understand. Yeah. But I but think like it, it, what, if, what a coincidence that like what the book is about is now coming
1: yeah, or In such clear relief in like, your life. Yeah, like having written the book. Like yeah. each thing you do, and I would, I would really want to say this to listeners, each brave thing you do makes it possible to do the next brave thing. And if you don't do the little brave thing, it's harder to do the large brave thing. So always try for yourself to just, like, just Get in a little bit of something to to get you to the next place. I loved um, hearing Maya Angelo in ninety two in Miami say, You know if you hear a racist comment and you can't say anything in return, you can get up and leave the room. You can get up and leave the room. Just, just start with the thing that your body can bear for you to do. Always listen to the body and, and do it. And that way you make a space for the next brave thing.
0: I wanna read that NDA poem. Okay,
1: great. I've um, forgotten Yeah, here we go. Page So 82. it's on page eighty two. Yeah. The picture of radical doubt in the diary industry. NDA. Are there things I can't say here, things we've agreed there's no way to say? Are those tears in your eyes as you shush me to catch the chorus, land of the, home of the, insisting again on your version as you force me to stand with one hand held over as if to hide or shield my heart in the fog of feelings that don't matter unless they are the right ones, yours. As you usher in the suits, the uniforms believe they can both die for and live to become someday as the arrests start because your objections are patriotism. My objections are chaos and you want me to listen to you first but mostly you want to hear the silence without me. Is it better? It must be better. Everyone will be so free and brave if I just and loving. The gun will lower. The hard gaze below the brim of the helmet behind the riot shield will soften and glow to resemble the face of the goddess Elsie in all of her incarnations, laughing, urging us all to indulge ourselves, healthy and happy, until there is nothing but the sound of joyful cows singing, everyone almost crying with happiness, sniffling into the wadded paper napkins around the juicy burgers, slurping vanilla milkshakes and weeping with gratitude for the cows and the country, where everything is so wonderful all the time, except there's a lot of, but it's Treatable, absolutely, of depression, not to mention pain. And if I would just shut the fuck up, stop voting or say something nice for once, can't you say something nice? If you can't say anything nice, you should just be quiet and it will all be great again, just like it was before, 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 immediately.
0: It's astounding how this poem echoes what's happening not just to you but as you said to so many writers and and intellectuals um,
1: and and people and artists. because artists yeah here I, here I am in New Orleans which just had an election where only 27% of the people came out to vote Ooh. and that means that a whole bunch of people feel like it would just be better if they yeah you know, well my
0: question uh, about this book, about sort of the, the 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 concern of the book, what does it mean to be told to shut up, and and what does it mean to Acquiesce? Accue- accue- uh, can you help me out? <laughs> <laughs> um, acqu- acqu- acquiesce? Yeah. Acquiesce. Acquiesce. Oh my God! I'll get there eventually. Beautiful. Uh, so I want to know what you would say to someone who's listening right now and who wants to speak out but sees how dangerous it can
1: be. Um What would you two, say to him either way? Yeah, two things immediately. One, the great advice my grandmother gave me. You have something inside you that needs to come out. Write it down. Write it down. Start there. Write it down. Next, get yourself to a community of like-minded people. Be with the people that you can speak to honestly, the people you can speak your whole mind and whole heart to. That is what you must do and make that community and support that community.
0: Do you feel like you have that community?
1: I am on my way to finding that community. I feel like I have that community. It's far flung. Um, Mm. I certainly have that community here in New Orleans. It's one of the great joys of being here. And I am lucky enough to have that community in other cities in in New York, in um, mm-hmm. you know, in uh, and uh, I'm talking to you from New Orleans, where somebody crept up on all the street signs of Jefferson Davis Highway and changed it to Angela Davis Highway. <laughs> mm, yes. And we have a chance. We always where there's life, there's hope. We have a chance. We have a chance. I love that. I love that you're in that place now. That
0: must feel really good. It's, to feel it's, supported by the city.
1: Yeah, I am. I am so glad to be here. But um, yeah. New Orleans is a state of mind you need to take with you everywhere.
0: Sarah Mullen is the author of nine books of poetry and experimental prose, including The Surface, which was a national poetry series selection, The Tales of Horror, Subject, Murmur, After I Was Dead, Complicated Grief, and her latest Etc. She also published a translation of the French multi-genre writer Véronique Pitolo's Hero, Laura Mullen received fellowships from McDowell, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Caroli Foundation. And she received the Rona Jaffe Award and the Woods Frank Stanford Prize. She was also a featured poet at the International Poetry Festival in Taipei. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Helena de Groot. And this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening.